0: Here he is. What's up, dude? How's
1: it going? Flight mode engaged.
0: How's the smoking going?
1: Great, dude. What are you down to? Smoking loads of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This time last year, you got down to 1.8 cigarettes Mm -hmm. a day.
1: I think shortly after our interview, I I got down to 1.5, and then tour started. And it was just sitting in a hotel room being miserable, and I was like, fuck this.
0: Well, you tried.
1: I tried. I mean, off tour, it's a possibility, I think, on tour. I think that's fair enough. Can it he, can he be done?
0: Okay, we're going to officially begin. Hello, listener, and welcome to Q Presents The Making Of, a podcast brought to you by the world's best music magazine, Q. Each week we go deep into the lives of the great music makers of our time and ask them to take us on a voyage through the past, through their lives and music. We ask the big questions. Who are they? Where did their music come from? What was the music that inspired them and what makes them tick? My name is Niall Doherty and I'm the Deputy Editor of Q. I'm sitting in for your usual host, Ted Kessler, and our guest this week is Paul Banks. Paul is the singer, frontman and lyricist of Interpol, one of the most important guitar bands of modern times. A resident of New York, Paul is also an avid surfer and an Essex boy by birth. But we'll get into all that. Hello, Paul. How are you? Good, man. How are you? Good. I'm a solid 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10. How are you? Have you got your road legs? Where, where, what, what are you up to at the moment?
1: Uh, yeah, we... What did we do yesterday? We played a show in Brighton, Yeah. lovely town, and then drove to London last night... Day off today, five in a row through Europe and Poland and France.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously you have those big event shows like Glastonbury. With the ones in between, do you ever sort of get yourself, find yourself on stage and you've forgotten where you are?
1: I wake up almost every day and have no idea where I am. But on stage, generally I know what city I'm in.
0: Right. Because,
1: you know, I I do my, my power. It usually includes thanking the town that I'm in. So I get that part right.
0: Do you do some sort of local research? Nah. <laughs> nah.
1: You just... <laughs> no, I mean, I researched boxing gyms and Starbucks, but that's about it.
0: Do you do your boxing gym stuff on tour?
1: Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like that's the cool. the only thing that... That's the the main thing that keeps me from going totally apeshit. We're we, we allowed to use... Uh,
0: yeah, we're all out. It's fine. Expletives. I think it would be hard to do a podcast with Paul Banks if we weren't. I know.
1: Trash mouth chap. <laughs> Us. I Think we could call this chipper chipper chats with Paul?
0: <laughs> That's for your I, podcast because I
1: showed up in such a mood.
0: It was alright. You're okay now. Oh um, yeah, I mean you've turned that ship around.
1: I have. Well, I got my my cup of coffee, so that usually puts me back on track.
0: And what's your headspace like when you're on tour? Does it take you a while to get into that that sort of that mode of being? Um,
1: no, I think I definitely now am able to kind of pick up and go. I'm. uh i mean i really i live out of a suitcase so really honestly like tour it's just such an old familiar routine kind of packing a suitcase and just hitting the road and i've it's been a long time since i've forgotten anything or left anything in hotel rooms you know it's pretty much the tour mode is now just like a muscle that's always kind of ready to go for me
0: right do you Um, you miss it when you're not on the road
1: not at all not even the tiniest bit
0: do you think there would ever be a moment where you were one of those bands or artists who don't tour much?
1: I mean, I don't think in today's market that's really an option. I think, uh, you know, if I think I'd be very comfortable. Like, I remember the old days, I feel like bands would just put out records and they might even opt to not tour a record because they were so excited to be back in the studio to record again. I feel like I heard something like the Allman Brothers did this. Uh, right? Like, in that era, it was not necessary you know album sales could support a band so i love playing shows that would never be a scenario that i would prefer to only be a studio band and never play live i definitely love playing live but i certainly don't miss tour tours uh yeah it's tough tough gig
0: do you ever feel like you are in some sort of creative purple patch and you'd rather be in the studio
1: creative purple patch what's that
0: you know like if if you were saying about when bands just wanted to be like say Off the top of my head, REM with "Out of Time" and "Automatic for the People," Mm -hmm. where they would just could feel themselves like we should just do another album straight away rather than tour.
1: Is that what they did? Because those are two. um, Those those two records were super influential for me. As a matter of fact, "Out of Out of Time" was like one of my biggest jams.
0: Right, and you can tell that's a real studio record. Right, and you can tell by Hmm. "Automatic for the People" that they were sort of.
1: You just man, there's one song on "Out of Time" that I was. It's really one of my favorite songs ever, and it's been ages since I thought about it. There's a real kind of mysterious track on that record. Shall I just look it up real quick? Look
0: it up, yeah. It's not like country feedback or something. It is, thank you. It is, yeah. Dude, I, I, can, that's hear, I my can hear. Fucking
1: jam, dude.
0: I can hear a lot of influence on you from that track. Sure. The yeah. delivery, the lyrics.
1: Totally absolutely another one would be uh boo radley's um Pond 57th and fairchild which i think we talked about at some point yeah is another song where la- years later i went back and heard it and i was like oh there's a lot of blueprint you know from this one song in in a lot of what i do
0: in terms of ly- lyrically or vocally
1: and the band dude you know like i and it's not that i wrote bass lines or daniel's guitar parts or anything in the early songs but i feel like that song kind of like even just things that maybe somebody did something i was like yeah let's do that you know there's like yeah the the baseline to that song by the Wee Radleys reminds me of interpol so does some of the guitar parts as well as the vocal you know not just not just what i do in interpol so
0: what were you doing like artistically at the at the point at which you heard those records and those songs
1: i would have just been a guy with a guitar writing songs and i had a four track so i'd do my little demos i've been doing that since high school
0: what did they sound like? Did they sound like anything like your solo work or like Interpol? Yeah,
1: more like my solo. Maybe, maybe like the Julian Plenty record is, is a lot of music that I wrote in that era. Like four-track stuff I wrote when I was like 18, 19.
0: What so. was the first track you wrote you were proud of?
1: Um, there was a decent one called Cellophane. The Larynx That You Have was another one that I did live. Those are out there. Actually, somebody has a recording of a like open mic session I did. I've never heard those recordings, but I know that they are there. And then on the Esplanade was like a really right. early one that made the record.
0: I mean, that your sound—if that you did that early on, your, your sound sounds like it was set. Then,
1: yeah, I mean, I think like when I met Daniel and we were talking about because I wasn't the singer initially when we when Interpol started. I was just you know joining a band as a guitar player, and then when we started talking about singing, Daniel kind of asked me like. You know who would your influences be or who do you think you sound like and it's kind of funny because it doesn't it never came across in interpol i don't think but i think at the time i'd said like neil young and uh and maybe even leonard cohen you know something more folky but then i guess because of the way that interpol was in rehearsal rooms where it just sort of it required like a what i thought it required a heavier vocal performance you know a more shouty kind of delivery just and that was in order to be heard over the drums in that room um it's just kind of funny that what we discussed were my influences never really came through in what Interpol actually became sonically whereas I think my solo stuff those references don't seem so outlandish compared to what I actually do
0: yeah I mean that vocal that came out of you Hmm. did you know it was there you are saying that it came out it was sort of a sort of products of the environment
1: it was and I remember kind of saying to like when we were doing our first demos we were walking down the street to do a, a demo of pda and i'd heard like a rough of it and i said to carlos i was like my voice sounds so baritone and low like maybe i'm should i go an octave up and carlos who kind of knew more about music than me i remember he just said like very confidently like no nah, man that'd be like falsetto you know that's there's no octave up for that <laughs> song but it was yeah it was kind of odd to me and also i think another thing about it is that when i write my own songs I generally find a place that's very comfortable in my vocal range. Yeah. Like I'll write in a key that just feels natural, naturally for me to sing in. But Daniel just writes in whatever key Daniel feels like writing in. And I've always just kind of adapted my voice to fit the key of what that song is going to be. And so I think that's another way in which it sort of became something that I couldn't anticipate. All of those things, I think, kind of contribute to why we're, you know, why it works well that we work together is kind of that chemistry pushing yourself to kind of try and find a voice relative to a key or a song that you didn't write
0: yeah just how interpol is the components of three individuals now Mm. four at the start but that chemistry is everything yeah when when could you tell that was happening when in the early days of interpol did you think you had something special i
1: remember when we i mean the the moment daniel knew me from being we did a study abroad thing in paris when we were both, he was leaving NYU and I was entering NYU and we were both doing an NYU course in Paris. And uh, he saw me, <clears throat> he and I had like a class or two together and we were friendly uh, and I had my guitar because I had always had my guitar with me. So when we both moved back to New I moved to New York City to start college and he was already living in New York City and he saw me in that kind of NYU area and came up to me one day and said like, I know you play, do you want to come and see my band rehearse? and I walked in and it was Carlos who I'd seen from my dorm and was already a fan of, um, even though I didn't know him, I was a fan. And they were just, you know, it was dope. I think they were probably playing like PDA. So it was just those two? No, and our original drummer. And um, yeah, sometimes I kind of put my foot in my mouth with regards to that original lineup because, you know, it was great. We wrote like great, we wrote, you know, PDA and stuff together. So it was a, our initial drummer was a great drummer. Yeah. uh, And a really solid dude but there was, there was something kind of not exactly right in the chemistry, which is it's again, it's like no failing on anyone's part creatively or artistically, which I feel like sometimes I don't frame that the right way. When I describe this, it was more, the chemistry wasn't perfect. Right. When we got Sam, it wasn't that it was like a better artist. It was just like the chemistry was there. And I want to like clarify that. Cause I feel like I owe, you know, Greg, our original drummer, some, some respect. Um, but yeah, it was, then we had the chemistry and when I felt like, uh, once that happened once we had sam that was when i knew like okay i think we we really have the possibility of doing something really dope
0: what were your expectations at that point
1: not a lot um i think it really just really boiled down to is if it's good and I remember I had a bit of an epiphany as well about persistence when I was only like 18, 19, where I was kind of like, just because people don't get what you're doing right now, I think that if you stick with something for a long enough period of time, you at least garner the respect of the commitment you have, which will maybe give somebody pause to give you a second look if they didn't the first time. Simply like, why is that person so confident in what they're doing that they're still doing it five years later? Um,
0: That's quite a wise thing for a sort of late teens. Yeah but
1: i think it's true you know what i mean so anyway i just kind of felt like if i believe we can do something good then what else do i need as far as a um what more reassurance can life ever offer anybody you know what i mean like i don't know if it's going to work but i do know that like it's going to be requisite that it's good if we're going to succeed and i know that it can be good so let's start there and that was sort of the attitude
0: And did it feel like it came together quite quickly? Did things start happening for Interpol quickly?
1: Um, No, no, no. We we toured or we played local shows for years. And it was, again, kind of Daniel who worked at record companies at that point in time and, you know, worked with bands and sort of knew, had a lot of insight about how to go about these things. So little things like we didn't play too often. Uh, We played like maybe once a month so that your friends don't get tired of coming to see you. And I think little things like that. So, probably literally every show we ever did in the first like five years would be slightly more people at the next show. So, doesn't mean that we came out gangbusters and everybody was going crazy for it, but it was just always a steady progression of like more people in attendance each time we played. And I think that had lots to do with just sort of not tiring people out by saying, oh, come to our show, you know, every Thursday.
0: What was the point at which you thought this is actually going to go places?
1: Hmm. It was probably not until we did our first U.S. tour for Bright Lights, and we got places, and that every show was sold out, and everybody was going crazy. So after the record had come out. Yeah, yeah.
0: And did you feel at that point in New York? Obviously, it was documented in that excellent book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is, is you're reading like two decades, almost two decades on, and it's capturing this nostalgia of all these exciting acts in New York. Could you feel that at the time that you were part of something, or did you just feel like you were doing your own thing?
1: Yeah. And I also think, you know, you're so like the landscape for you as an artist, I think, is so occupied by what you're doing. So it wasn't really, you know, I was young and I don't know, I wasn't really thinking about there's a scene here and we're going to be part of it. And in a larger context, then this might happen. It was just like, I'm in this band and I want this band to be good. It there was no no I didn't have any idea that like there was a you know a big upcoming resurgence of rock in New York City. I didn't know the Strokes personally. I didn't know about their residency at Mercury Lounge, which happened shortly before they exploded. Uh, I didn't know the Yeah, yeah Yeah's personally. May have gone to some of the same bars with the Yeah, yeah Yeah's, maybe even with the Strokes, but no. There there was not an awareness that there was this thing bubbling up.
0: And what did you How did that sort of initial like burst of success affect you personally? How did you take it? Um, I mean that's an
1: interesting question uh, like i won't, I wound up getting a little bit off the rails for a couple of years with partying and stuff, but i I don't even know if that was because of success as much as that I didn't have to go to a job at 9 a.m because when I was working before I was successful I was going like probably harder than I should on weekends but then I was still showing up to work Yeah. so it wasn't that like now I'm in a band and people like what I'm doing so I'm gonna get fucking crazy I I was already crazy but I just was able to hold down a job and then when you take away that sort of 9 to 5 obligation somebody with my temperament at that age is like I went a little bit off the rails with the partying but I don't even think that was because we were doing well I think it was just that I didn't have to show up to work yeah um so and as far as like my ego and stuff i think i'm fortunate with my makeup that uh i didn't have a big ego trip about anything you know either i don't think i got full of myself did you feel confident i always felt confident getting out on stage yeah i always felt confident as a singer on stage which which had more to do with kind of just believing in what i was doing i think because i'm not somebody that's confident to do, like, a, a speech or a, or a toast. Like, that makes me, I think, more uncomfortable than the average person. Right. Um, whereas getting out on stage with my weird lyrics and my weird band, I always kind of felt like, no, I'm, like, you know, the world's foremost authority on this weird lyric that you're about to hear. So I'm very confident that I can deliver it as it needs to be delivered. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of that wordplay, obviously, lyrics mean a lot to you. You're a big reader. Mm. When did when did you start to be sort of captivated by words?
1: I mean, in in grade school, I do remember I would literally go to the the library and read the thesaurus some days.
0: Really? When I was like,
1: yeah, 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 when I was probably like ten. So I I was it was a thing for me really early on. What? I know my you know my mom read to me as a kid, I guess, and so. Oh, no, that was it. Yeah, it was, again, my mom, uh, when I was probably in, like, sixth grade, she brought me just some, like, young young horror fiction by this author, Christopher Pike. Right. And uh, I read every book he wrote. Like, so from that age, I just, like, consumed books. And then after him, I read everything Stephen King wrote. And then after that, I went into kind of classics and, like, you know, real literature. But before that, it was sort of, yeah, a lot of reading from the age of probably, like, 11.
0: And I think we have spoken about it before, but have you got a book in you? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think I do. Fiction? Memoirs? Bit of both?
1: You know, I was just talking to somebody about this, that it's funny. I have two kind of favorite authors, or two types of favorite authors. One is like Henry Miller, who is my favorite author, and, um, and I love Bukowski. <clears throat> and then I have favorite authors like Dostoevsky and Herman Melville. And they're completely different in a way to me, whereas like Henry Miller feels like he's literally describing the events of his life. And in doing so, his view on humanity comes across. Then you get like a Dostoevsky who it feels like they've built this cathedral. So they have like this unbelievable insight into human nature, much like Melville. But the way that they portray it is through creating a fucking world. And like the idea of creating a world in a work of fiction is what I, I have no insight into any aspect of how do you do that you know it's like absolutely can't imagine how someone would write a book like the brothers karamazov or you know some of the works i've read by herman melville whereas henry miller i feel like oh no i could you know i could write about the shit that happened in my life yeah and like give my take on existence that way so I feel like I could I could manage that I could manage something in the style of a Miller or a Bukowski but I certainly don't think I could manage something like a masterwork of fiction like a Dostoevsky
0: when are you going to get around to that
1: well that's the other thing when I was in college I also kind of set up the things I want to do in life were uh, as defined at that age were music painting literature fashion design and maybe furniture and I kind of put them in an order of what do I need to do first and which ones can wait. And what was, so, that,
0: was that the order?
1: No. The, well, the, it became at that time like rock, rock music was, was two things. A, the one that was most time-sensitive to be like a you know a rock band. I felt like better to do that while I'm young. Yeah. And secondly, kind of the most, the most intuitive of all the arts for me, the one that, that is like least effortful and the one that I just think, you know, it's like it's just there the urge to make music and participate in music um, and then uh, yeah and then I just figured fuck it I can write a book when I'm 60 I can paint when I'm 70 and I can do you know clothing and furniture as well like no no hurry there so yeah. I kind of put those things on the back burner
0: I've just got music journalism all the way yeah that That's, was the goal uh, yeah I'm just gonna go through the gears and sort of maybe graduate to a, an older gentleman's magazine but you strike
1: um, me as somebody that could get like way into pastries and stuff <laughs>
0: why I'm like I just because I've got chubby cheeks
1: no like cooking no it's something that you know creative people it's like one of those outlets that people get like really deep into you know okay I could see you doing that maybe
0: I like that you think that I'm gonna what do you to think
1: that. do you have anything on the side I
0: think I'll probably be interviewing some some band in 30 years no the same here.
1: here I'm not saying that when I want to, when I switch to painting or yeah, literature I... I'm gonna stop doing music I yeah. just mean that I'll address those things later is there
0: anything you think you've missed you're like I wish I'd done that then Ah, uh, not not
1: like though not in those terms no you know I, when i put out my first solo record i felt like it was 10 years too late but i felt like it was also as you know at least i did it now
0: yeah and that so. was between the third and fourth interpole albums was it or was it
1: yes yeah yeah
0: what, why Why then? Did you just think, I've got to do this at some point? Exactly.
1: Yeah, it was like it was songs that had been sitting in me for, you know, 10 years. And I just felt as I was approaching 30, it's like, hey, man, you know, this is crazy that you're singing on the Esplanade. If you die, if you're 70 and you're singing on the Esplanade in your head and no one's ever heard it, that's going to be fucking weird that you wrote <laughs> that when you were 19 and never, ever put it out anywhere. Yeah. So it's not, like, I don't look back and say, I wish I had not done Interpol and done that instead when I was 20. Because I feel like I kind of, I corrected any possible regret by just doing it. You know, like it wasn't so late that it was ridiculous that I put it out when I was 30. I I don't know if I'm making, you know, anything that I really feel like I need to do in life, I intend to do it. Yeah. If it's a little behind schedule, so be it.
0: You could just retcon the release date and make it before Interpol. Sure. In a few years, no, no one will question it. Yeah. Was it good for you to have that solo outlet? I mean, it's, I've,
1: you know that's what i was i was a solo artist i wasn't actually even looking to be in a band i wasn't that that wasn't on my life's ambition was was not to join a band and and work with other songwriters it was just to do my own thing but then life happens and you meet super talented people and say like oh fuck it i'll go you know be in this band
0: so in your head are you a solo artist who ended up in a band um
1: i mean now i think i'm a lot of things now i mean i i've Come to recognize the power of collaboration in ways that I don't think I understood back then. Um, But I'm just an artist, man. Yeah, it's not that I'm a solo artist. I think I'm just an artist. Hi, I'm Paul Banks, and you are listening to Q Presents
0: The Making of. Going back to growing up, tell me about what you remember from growing up in Essex.
1: Well, it was only I moved out of Essex when I was three. I lived in. And I wasn't even in Essex till so I was in Stoken Church. Right. You ever heard of this place, Stoken no. Church? I don't even know where that is, but that's where we lived before we moved to the States when I was three. And then we would come back to visit my granny in Essex throughout my youth. Um, I, I'm
0: massively crestfallen that you didn't live in Essex. I've told, I've told everyone that Paul Banks is a proper Essex boy. Well,
1: I mean, I, my mom's from there. I was born there. My granny lived there. And I'd you, spend summers there visiting
0: my gran and that was in Clacton on sea yeah some water you got water you got your coffee
1: yeah we were visiting my granny one summer and I was in a trailer a caravan park in Essex right with my mum and my brother and that was one of the times where I had like a one of the few I had a couple of these in my life but like real culture shocks where I was being made fun of by the kids in the trailer park for being an American. How old were you? Probably like five, right? And it was like well, I thought I was English, you know what? What's going on, you know? But because of the accent, they were giving me shit about it, and I remember just feeling sort of odd. That was like the first time that this distinction between being an American and a Brit came came across to me.
0: And did you carry on thinking that you were English, or then did you think, well, maybe I'm American then? Um. I honestly didn't
1: think much about it in those terms. I think as an adult, I will point out, because I think to everybody I'm like an American. I'm as American as they come. But then I I feel a little bit like correcting that because I think if you're raised by Brits, then how American, you know, you can't ever really be 100% American. I mean, I'm American by the influence that the outside world had on me growing up there, but at home, you know, Americans are foreigners to my parents. So that was that odd blend of like which... You know, I don't really know or care which I am. I just know that I have roots in England and kind of much more culturally American.
0: Does it strike you about the sort of similar lineage that you and Daniel have, that you end up in a band together as sort of songwriting spars?
1: Uh, Spars? What do you mean?
0: You know, sort of songwriting, sparring with each other, these songs. I'm going to rephrase that because it sounds rubbish.
1: Well, no, no, but we're not really. I mean, I'm the vocalist to the songs that he writes.
0: It's more like the, the dynamic. Do you not think that's underplaying your role as an artist in Interpol? Well, no, in the sense of we don't spar
1: like, hey, check out this song. Hey, check out this song. It's just Daniel presents songs and then we build Interpol music from that. That's that's the formula in Interpol. Right. So it's not sparring. It's sort of like
0: just different roles. And then in terms of going back to growing up, did you grow up in a musical household? I did. My dad was in a skiffle band when he was a kid. Really?
1: Yep uh what were they called i don't know i should ask him i'm I'm meeting him later um so we had a load and then he kind of got into collecting guitars and he was really obsessed with like martin guitars so we had just and then when i was a little kid he came home and brought my brother and i an epiphone guitar and i was probably nine or ten but it was like one of these fucking jumbo acoustics that like today (laughs) i'd have a hard time playing you know the action like they're hard to play acoustic guitars so that didn't really take off <laughs> um but then when i was when i got bit by the bug to play music which was when i was probably in eighth or ninth grade there was just guitars around the house so i was able to be like oh i want to play guitar and i'll just go grab one of the guitars that are in my house uh so that was it's musical in that way and then yeah both my parents big lovers of music we had a huge vinyl collection
0: um what were the standards that you can remember being played
1: it's funny because sometimes i've got it wrong and annoyed my pops i think one time i said like toto and i got a message from my dad saying like your mom was into toto <laughs> <laughs> i think it was toto but uh asia i guess i guess a um who's the guitar steve howe is a guitarist right. in asia i think so am i right there or do you or am no i thinking idea. yes i'm
0: just gonna nod along
1: steve howe's a big guitarist who's either in yes or asia okay fuck he's in yes yes is the one that had the crazy that's gonna be so mad about this whole bit but i know it's steve howe <laughs> anywho he is so into that dude he bought like all of his solo records and stuff and um but they had the these crazy album covers um all right dude i'm gonna look this one up because come on now asia has like like with a sea serpent coming out of the ocean and right you
0: know what i'm talking about that never influenced sort of interpol's artwork
1: didn't influence the artwork but it was one of those you know things that as a kid you look at it's almost like looking at comic books because the graphics on vintage lp art you know was really kind of special like thinking about pink floyd so we had all of pink floyd was he trying
0: to play it to you like hey son listen to this
1: no no he
0: wasn't trying to sort of do that
1: no he um yeah asia bro with these fucking sea serpents and shit Pretty. we had that record oh yeah and he worked with yes the guy who did the guy who did the artwork for asia did the artwork for yes too and steve howe was the guitarist for yes boom
0: there we go this okay. is podcast classic just oh, yeah. paul banks reading off a wikipedia page
1: um <laughs> my uh what he, i mean i think yeah my dad would probably kind of say listen to this and play a santana he was like gaga for santana Right. so that's the thing I had very you know both my parents were really enthusiastic about music there was definitely just like a culture of love for music at at home
0: and then what was the spark when you said that you, you did want to pick up the guitar what were you listening to um
1: the year before Jane's Addiction had come out um with Ritual so I remember like being way into that you know and like watching MTV and seeing the video for uh being caught stealing right and stop uh so I was way into that and then Nirvana oh no it was uh then I was listening to classic rock and it was the song Dream On by Aerosmith that made me pick up a guitar and and try and learn how to play Dream On. Um did you nail it? Actually my dad helped me with that. He showed me. He like kind of learned it by ear and showed me. But uh, no, nah, man. I also like. I'm a kind of partic- I'm peculiar in the in the sense that I never learned whole songs. Even, dude. I would just learn like the riff that I liked from a song, and then I got a book of chords. And then as soon as I learned like five chords, I just decided to start writing right. my own music.
0: Um, from the fast track way. That was it.
1: You're I guess so. In. No, but I think it's better. I think it's you know you get a. It, that's one thing. When you ask what I've done something different, it's like I, I probably would have studied the song structure and craft of songwriters that i loved and like actually gone in i do it now but i wish i'd done it then
0: but then if you'd said that to a teenager any teenager now make sure you study the song craft
1: well but it's not it's like do a do a full cover cover the whole song so that you can play it top to bottom and just see what's going on with the you know with the structure but yeah i was just kind of trying to do my own thing pretty immediately
0: and what were your lyrics like when did you start writing
1: Tenth grade, so oh yeah, that doesn't mean anything uh, fifteen yeah
0: we saw the did you see the blank look on my face? yeah, I did so there was yeah. a lot of, someone a... was
1: trying to tell me about a levels and O levels, and I' like, what the fuck? <laughs> the fuck are you talking about man
0: and what what were your lyrics like at that point?
1: um I think kind of literate literature influenced I was reading Borges. I remember there was I wrote a song about like the library of Babel, you right know, you know that so you just went in deep, straight away. I guess so. There's a and, no and song
0: about your first kiss or anything like I'll that. Tell
1: you, I'll tell you what, there was also a lot of wave imagery, even then. I do remember I wrote a song about a tsunami, really early, like when I was a teenager, obsessed with
0: waves. since. So, I mean, you were born near the sea. Yeah. You spend a lot of time near the sea now. Should we talk about that a bit? Sure. Because you're basically a beach bum.
1: I am, yeah. Do you want to hear a little stoner...
0: I definitely thought do. I have. Yes.
1: All right. all right. So, you know about simulation theory?
0: Yes. In this... terms of alternative realities and.
1: Um. Well, alternative realities is a totally viable. Concept I'm going to say yes, but I think theory. you
0: should you should explain it all. Let's go in. At well, the, let's go in at the ground level. All right.
1: Check it out. So, my introduction was about like ten years ago. I was watching something on YouTube where it was like an ex NASA scientist talks about something or other in like an early equivalent of a TED talk and he was describing the two slits light experiment which is this weird phenomenon with light that was discovered that we all learn about in grade school where like you you like whatever like a shine light through two slits and then it comes up on this interference pattern on the other side that doesn't really make sense and then If you put a measuring device through one slit, it'll fuck up the result. Like, if you observe it, somehow the light knows and you get a different result. And he was talking about reverse constructing that experiment and blah, blah, blah stuff. I didn't really even grasp. But at the end of this talk he was giving, somebody in the audience kind of said to him, like, is there... What is your take on this thing that we call, like, existence and life? And this ex-rocket scientist's answer was, I I think we're in a computer simulation. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, he was dead serious. I wound up writing to this guy and actually having a brief email exchange with this ex-NASA rocket scientist about how he felt that we were living in a computer simulation. Since then, it's become a much more predominant theory where people take it very fucking seriously. And the concept is basically that, like... You know those people in the mall who put on the VR headsets yeah. and they're on a roller coaster and then they fall over or they think they're falling off a cliff and like their their brain is sufficiently tricked where they might lose their balance and fall over in the middle of a mall. Yeah. So computer processors double in power and get half as big like every 18 months or something. There's a there's a law by which it we have figured out that like computer processing advances at this certain rate. Um, so if right now you can trick somebody's brain enough to make them fall over in a mall with a VR headset a thousand years from now it's very very easy that you're gonna be able to trick the brain to not be able to tell between a fake reality and reality so within a few thousand years or whatever we'll be able to essentially simulate reality so if we're the first ever civilization that has ever existed in all of the universe then maybe we'll be the first one to ever get to a technological point where we can simulate reality but universe been around a whole long fucking time so Literally any civilization at a certain point of advancement is going to be able to simulate reality And so who's to say we're in the first one? Like who's to say we're like the base? Civilization yeah chances are we're like the 287th civilization and so we're like in simulation 287.
0: Who do I write to I want an upgrade who put me in this body? Well, no, and so, These shit, like,
1: so then that becomes that things like gravity and the speed of light are like processing limitations rather than you know Facts of nature per se. Yeah And then some guy, the the coolest thing about all of it that I heard is that, like, on the quantum level, there's, like, all these particles that are kind of blipping in and out of existence and they're sort of, like, uncertain to what they're, like, they exist in, like, spheres of possibilities where they could be this or they could be that, but they're not actually defined at any given moment. And some guy who does, like, computer programming was like, well, yeah, that's actually how you would save some processing power is, like, on that shit that's, like, really, really fine grain, just leave it as this or that. Because if you're going to name every fucking thing, it's like, you know take up way too much processing power so we'll just leave the really small shit like kind of this or that Yeah. so even people like looking at our reality on the, those levels kind of say like oh fuck yeah it really does kind of seem like you know there's this possibility and probability that technologically we'll get there or we're already there um, and then when you look at reality it does sort of seem to support this idea that we really could just be living in a computer simulation so anyway kind of in that spirit
0: <laughs> I just asked observer. if you like going on the I know, beach man. I know check
1: it out so within that, this is the thought that I've had, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> when you're looking out at the ocean and you're seeing all these like reflections, refract, uh, reflections of light and shadow, Yeah. I just had this thought like, that might be the most information that the human eye ever processes at one moment. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. Is that like, technically you never look at more information than when you're looking at all the little light reflections that are happening on the, the surface of the ocean when you're looking out that like that might be maximum visual intake
0: have you, have you been drawn to write about simulation theory you know the muse released a record last year called simulation theory sure that's i mean that's
1: the thing what i love about this kind of stuff is that it's actually not just for stoners or for you know very a successful movie. it's men. like very no but very serious like in like that's real science like real scientists are talking about that as like absolutely viable possible you know situation it's not just you know creative thinking it's actually very seriously considering the same what you said about like multiple universes it's like very seriously discussed as like yeah yeah it could very well be the case which i just think is amazing that like science is actually stranger than our imaginations could even
0: how does it make you feel
1: love it man love all that shit Love it, love it, love it.
0: Do you often find yourself in a YouTube wormhole with things like I that? I do,
1: yeah. But I had an, when I was in high school, when I was a senior, I had this, I had that idea about us being in a petri dish and some scientist just kind of looking down and like doing it for a laugh, just see, like, fuck it, I can, why not, just like set this in motion, and see what people do, and that you know, and then people that have messianic complexes could be kind of basically saying like, I'm the guy that the scientist you know wants to see if he fulfills his full p- potential. <laughs> Stoned.
0: And then just pretending that we're not in a simulated reality yeah, no. and that you are on a beach. FYI, like, I don't think any of
1: that stuff implies anything that's against kind of like a concept of God or religion, just so you know. I don't think it's a I
0: wasn't, think, I wasn't thinking cool. that. Okay, man. I wouldn't think about you like that. All right. Um, let's talk about you and your little escape down to Panama. Yeah. How often do you go there?
1: Uh, depends on the season. Depends on if I'm working and I'm on tour. If it's cold in New York, I'll be in Panama.
0: so you basically you've you've got a place there and a place in new york and you sort of split your time is that right yeah well
1: that's my australian accent yeah
0: you're good at accents it's almost like when you want to deflect a question you do a little accent do you think yeah i think so that's interesting i was looking through our notes from the interview we did last year and there was a lot of accents going on quickly and i wrote i I just hung out with
1: my mom and my mom does it so i think it's also just something that comes in my family Right. Yeah, what's I do. F- I do do a load what, of it.
0: What's your favorite accent to do?
1: Probably Brooklyn, like Italian, <laughs> Italian mobster. Don't worry about it.
0: What's the one that you can't master yet? That you- I'm no good with British, dude.
1: I'm. I, I honestly can't do a casual British accent. Let me hear it. No, no, sir. I can do the sort of really hoity-toity, pretentious, proper one that probably no one even uses. But not even well, and I, I actually think that's really strange that I can't do a casual. I've been working on my Scottish for years, and I'm like a bit, or, a little bit better at that.
0: Yeah, your Scottish is okay. Thanks. I S- want to hear your Essex.
1: I'm no. I wouldn't have a, an idea what that sounds like. Sorry, mate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. What's next for Interpol? And and what's next for you? Um.
1: Interpol, we we are continuing this promoting Marauder until uh, uh, till the fall and then we'll take a break and I have a different project coming out next year in the spring hopefully
0: a musical one
1: yeah yeah
0: what about the painting last last time we spoke you told me that as soon as the music stops you start painting mm. so has the painting been on the wayside for it the has cast? yeah
1: it has and it's it's so cool man I don't even I don't miss it it's, it's really it's a beautiful thing it's so cool like when i'm occupied doing other stuff it's not like i wish i could be painting i don't think about it like it's almost like i'm not in love with that medium and then as soon as i'm not working on something else it just reemerges. and i just do it
0: what's the favorite painting you've done
1: um the guy that sylvester stallone arm wrestles at the end of over the top okay which is the movie? You ever see anybody turn yeah. their baseball cap backwards? Yeah, and, that and then means you do the hand movement. They're really getting fucking serious. Yeah, he did that against this guy. His name was Blaster.
0: What was it that drew you to? That drew you to him?
1: I the the first kind of like twenty five paintings I did because I started. I took one painting class in college, and I did two paintings in that class. And one of them is in my mom's flat, which I have in my phone. I'll show you because I actually saw it. and I was like, oh shit, my second painting was pretty good actually. Oh cool. Um. And then I went then I didn't paint for like 10 years. And then I think in like, uh, yeah, probably around 2010, I got the bug again and I started painting. I was painting uh, character actors from films that I loved from my childhood. It was like this thing I thought was kind of like a quirky concept to do. So I would take like some secondary actor from RoboCop who I thought did a great performance and paint that guy. I'd like isolate a freeze frame. One of my favorites that got destroyed on tour was the wrong Sarah Connor so that's uh that was the name of the painting the wrong sarah connor right. so in terminator he comes back from the future and he's looking through the phone book for sarah connor's to like kill yeah yeah you know and he goes to this lady's house and she's the wrong one and she's got curly hair and you just <laughs> see her answer the door and then this laser dot appears on her forehead and that's all she wrote for her but she you know she was just a lady named sarah connor she wasn't the woman who gave birth to the guy who was going to start the resistance <laughs> poor lady so but she was a great actress so like anybody who's a big fan of Terminator will actually know exactly who I'm talking about even though she's on screen for like four seconds Uh, and I kind of just celebrate that acting ability where I feel like people can do like these really powerful performances just with a facial expression Um, so anyway that that was fun for me to paint characters like that because you get film lighting which is interesting lighting and then you get an actor who's able to portray like a blend of emotions and not just one emotion so painting a portrait of an actor like that it it allows you know it's just fun for the expression to yeah. try and capture whatever if there's a mixture of fear and shame or fear and surprise or pride and you know where they nervousness live? in a stack in my attic in my loft
0: is there going to be an exhibition one day um
1: i don't know i i think there might be something coming up where somebody wants to use a painting or two for like a group show so that that might happen um but i don't think i'm good enough to do like my own on my own merits as a painter i wouldn't get my own show you know as some guy who's in a band that people know then maybe there could be some interest but i'm not really at a level where i'd get my own show
0: what was the last new hobby you started i guess boxing and you've been doing that for
1: almost 10 years now
0: was at the same time when did you start surfing
1: like I, I started boxing probably like a year and a half, two years after I started surfing.
0: And so the boxing was like the sort of super sub when you went by the sea.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I, I always wanted to do martial arts since I was a kid, since Karate Kid. Have you
0: Seriously. painted anyone from Karate Kid?
1: I don't like the movie enough to have done that. No.
0: Oh, you know who I might? Yeah,
1: the blonde guy, the bad guy, Johnny. Yeah, he could. I could. I could probably. He's do quite
0: it. a major character. I don't know if he's minor enough to to fit into your
1: niche. Hmm. Hmm. I did Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. (laughs) In the moment.
0: I didn't tell you about this one? No.
1: That's another example of the blend of emotions. So it's a great actor who still works, who played Booger in that film, but he wins the burping contest. And so he's this guy that's been downtrodden and shat on his whole life. And now all of a sudden, all these people are applauding and celebrating him. So there's this moment after he wins where his face is conveying pride that he's won and also this like real skepticism and sort of like do they really like me like why is this happening that i'm suddenly feeling loved by people and so like that little blend of those two emotions on his face is what was fun to capture
0: and that brought out an emotion in you that split second
1: i don't know i think i'm just kind of fascinated by faces I've, i've always done portraits even since i was a kid and so when you start painting realistic portraits of blended emotions you start to see that like if you put the lower eyelid like one pixel too high or too low or if you flare a nostril by like a fucking fragment of a millimeter, the, f- the facial expression changes. What they're conveying completely changes. That's how tuned in we are to people's faces that we can see like micro movements of all the muscles. So it's just kind of fun when you're painting one of those blends. It's like, are you getting it or are you getting some other completely foreign emotion? because of something ever so slightly wrong in it and so it's just i don't know i find that fascinating hi this is paul and you're listening to q Q presents presents the making of
0: uh okay um to finish up now yeah do you remember the magazine smash hits or did that pass you by in your young british youth
1: hmm Would, would that have been like the kind of thing with like the it was like a pop, pop magazine, yeah, yeah. New Kids on they the They had block. this
0: thing called the Biscuit Tin, and they used to get artists to pick out a Dude. question. Uh, but but no, what I we're going to do you, now, no, you're going to okay. pick out some qu- a question from here. We'll see how it goes. Maybe do three. Just some random questions put together lovingly by from the Smash It's archive, and also from a bit of sprinkling on top from Q. Lovely. There you go, an accent to deflect the... Wait, uh, one of them? Just take one for now, yeah. What's the question?
1: If you found Aladdin's lamp, what would you wish for? You're not going to believe me, but, like, I actually always, you know, in these kinds of mind games, try and stay away from the selfish things. And I would wish for world peace. And I actually genuinely mean that.
0: But you, uh, you got a little smirk on. <laughs> you're going to go for world peace? Do I? Yeah. I... That's good. That's because you're happy. It's not a... No, because I kind of like feel a, like, you it, know, d- it's like there's this it looks temptation. like It looks like a sort of devious smirk. Like, you're, you've got something else planned. No, no, no.
1: I, I just think there's this great temptation to, like, you know, be invisible or be able to fly and this and that, but you wouldn't really be able to enjoy it if you knew that you could have solved, like, all of the world's problems <laughs> and instead, you know, you decided to win the lottery every year or something bullshit like that.
0: Okay. That's very loving of you.
1: Thanks, man. Oh, or, or, yeah, hold on. All right, let's... <laughs> maybe maybe I'd say I want... I want infinite wishes, and you know, then I'd start with world peace, and then I'd go and do the invisibility and the, in the Everyone
0: knows the rules. Oh, shit. Okay, next question.
1: Are you good at DIY? Whew. I wanna say yeah, but I'm not. I am not.
0: But you're a trier.
1: I'm definitely a trier, yeah. Yeah. And if you said that if you said you're not good at DIY, then I would fucking become good at DIY. <laughs> I can say I'll tell you that. Can you put a shelf up? I mean, I could.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Doesn't stay up. <laughs> doesn't mean
1: doesn't mean I have, but you know, pretty sure I could. <laughs> you know what, lots of stuff that I don't really care about doing, I'm I'm I feel no shame in just getting somebody who's qualified to do it as uh, as long as that leaves me more time to do something I actually care about doing.
0: Okay. How much of a fuel is it for you people saying you can't do something?
1: Dude, probably way more than I even realize. I definitely have issues with authority in that sense. Yeah, definitely.
0: Did someone say to you, "You're n- you're never going to be able to surf"? And that was it. No, no. I don't know if anybody ever said.
1: I don't know. I think it might be just being the younger brother. And kind of wanting to do everything that your big brother does, even though you're kind of not ready for it. And so you just get used to this idea of people are telling you you're not allowed or you can't do something that you want to do that you see someone right in front of you doing. And I think that really stuck in me deeply. I remember like having the idea of like, I want to be a rock star when I was 15 and saying like, that's my life goal. I remember kind of thinking like half of it is just to have the audacity to say that that's what you want was, was a pretty big epiphany for me too. You know, just daring to dream is really half of it so I think yeah anything that is supposed to be hard or like some people are allowed to do it but maybe not you that's the kind of shit that makes me crazy like if anybody can do it then I can do it
0: that's a good attitude here you go one more question
1: what do you consider the most overrated virtue that's a good one um Ooh, that's a good one. I'm I'm down with patience. I'm into that one. Generosity's good. Maybe um if is like thriftiness considered a virtue? Because yeah. I'll say that one's overrated, sure. I mean it's not that it's bad, but
0: in terms of what? Being tight.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can hear the Australian, right? She thought I was Australian for a second.
0: Let's do one more.
1: God, man, these are heavy. To whom would you most like to apologize to? Actually, that's too many twos in that, right? To whom would you most like to apologize should be the question.
0: Yes, but, but we put that one, one in there adds as a trick an extra two at the end. I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, I'll get the guilty. Let's just get that one right out of here. I didn't
1: write that, all right. Um. I got so distracted by that, I don't remember the question. Who would I most like to apologize to? Is yeah,
0: that, it? it's, that is a heavy-duty one.
1: Um, oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it'll be if, you know, you get snooty with somebody and then you realize that that was unnecessary. That always makes me want to go back and say sorry. But uh, I don't feel like... That's not really... I don't know. I don't know, man. I kind of feel like it, apologies that I feel that I owe... I've I've given them. Maybe other people would argue, I'm, I'm sure there's many people that think I owe them an apology, actually, but in my mind, I've given the ones that I need to give.
0: Let's do one more, see if there's a silly one. I don't want you going out with such a somber tone.
1: <clears throat> do you have any allergies? Allergic to fucking grammatical mistakes. <laughs> fucking questions. Um... No, a little bit to cats, long-haired cats. When I was a kid, I got asthma from cats. Um, But I don't spend a lot of time around cats anymore to know if I still have that allergy. Somebody was telling me the reason why you can develop like a nut allergy in the middle of your life is because, uh, I mean, they said that it's because your cells renew every seven years. And then I was thinking just today, I was like, well, wait a minute, they don't all renew at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) So it's actually not as neat as that you're a new guy every seven years uh it's probably much more gradual but one
0: day you just can't sing
1: yeah totally because because i'm a new dude yeah (laughs) um yeah actually now that sounds like total bullshit to me as to why you can develop a nut allergy late in life but anyway i don't i don't have any perfect thank you
0: thank you very much for coming in paul and thank you to you the listener for tuning in thank you to producer sue Please remember to rate us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. You've been listening to Q Presents The Making Of with Paul Banks.
1: Hi, I'm Paul Banks, and you are listening to Q Presents The Making Of. Um, I just got inspired. Have you ever heard Orson Welles losing his shit on... He's doing, like, a commercial for, like, vegetables, frozen vegetables. Um... Hi, this is Paul from Interpol, and you're listening to Q Presents The Making Of.
0: I think. Okay, that's like three usable ones there.